0: Perhaps I can help you, Miss White.
1: Perhaps you can. This thimble—it's dented and scratched. Oh, it most assuredly is. Now, why don't you take it back to the gift department and—Mr.
2: Sloan, I just explained to Mr. Armbruster here. I did not purchase this in the gift department. I was taken up to the ninth floor.
1: That's what makes it so difficult to understand. You see, we don't have a ninth floor. Uh, Uh, Something.
2: Welcome back to Strange Highways. I hope you guys uh, suffered through uh, the Mr. Beavis episode like we did, and we're back to talk about a great episode. I am Paul.
0: And I'm Kevin. Uh, settle down on the Mr. Beavis hate there. Jeez. <laughs> never never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, join, joining us this week, we have a very special guest. Very excited to have my buddy Tom on from the wonderfully insightful uh, uh, Film for Thought podcast. I almost said talk without rhythm. Already botching the introduction. Um, Tom, thanks for coming on tonight.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a long time coming. I reached out, uh, last time I was on Film for Thought trying to figure out what episodes were your favorite, and I wanted to get you on, and I think we missed the last one about four months ago, so I'm glad we could finally get you on. Um, After Hours. Yeah, After Hours was one that you, uh, spoke very highly of, and it's a pretty well-renowned episode, so... It, very excited to talk about it. Um, before we get started, though, I wanted to ask you uh, just your history with Twilight Zone. And uh, I know a lot of us grew up watching it. I I can't assume everybody did, but I was just curious to see your viewing history with it.
1: I started Twilight Zone about three years ago. I remember it was actually um, the 4th of July I saw on TV. They had, um, I think it was on the Sci-Fi Channel, they were having a marathon Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I never watched an episode. I know a lot of people like it. Let me just uh, turn it on. And I, I was just instantly hooked. And then I started look, doing more research online and just watching more and then finding out they were all on Netflix. And I just marathoned them. I would watch one every night before I went to bed. And, um, you know, I was telling everybody, like all my friends, I'm like, have you guys watched The Twilight Zone? It's um, it's really addicting. And um, I'm a really big fan.
0: Yeah, Netflix has been uh, really helpful for our show. Yeah. <laughs> trying uh, trying to reach out and get that Blu-ray box set, but uh mm. it doesn't seem like uh, we're getting <laughs> much support for that. <laughs> the, well, it's
2: like you you mentioned the, like the excitement of like have you watched this? It's like that's kind of I feel like right now black, uh, about Black Mirror when I want to get people and be like, "Have you watched the show?" Like there's <laughs> it's like a bolt of lightning, you know, the first time you see something that's like so good. So I that's that's awesome.
1: awesome. Yeah. I,
0: Yeah, I I wish I could have watched it recently. I just, you know, I've told the story on this podcast before when I was younger, my friend's dad, we would always stay over his house and he had all of them on VHS just across like an entire wall. So every time I was over there, we'd pull one off and watch it while we're spending the night. And obviously the marathons have been on for years and years. So it was it's kind of fun now because I thought I had seen pretty much all of them and going through them. One by one, I realize how little of the episodes I've actually seen outside of the real famous ones. Yeah, me too. So it's, <laughs> it's interesting. It's it's really been kind of uh, a shock.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're almost almost season one, and I would argue that I probably have not seen like 28 of those episodes. Like it's it's been <laughs> like every time I turn around, I'm like, I know I have not seen this, you know, and that's it's it. I like that. Um, you find some some hidden gems, like even though the after hours is like one of people's like top like favorite ones, uh, we found some really cool ones that I'd never heard of before, and then we found right. some ones that we're not really going to talk about that much more. Like last episode with Mr. Beavis, I did it again, Kevin. Deal with it.
0: <laughs> it's all good. Uh, yeah, after hours, I'm pretty pumped to talk about. It. Like I I think I discussed this last week. It was the episode. Um, when I was kind of getting into horror and everything, and my mom always told me stories growing up of the scariest thing she's ever seen. And, uh, this episode was always something that she discussed as terrifying her as a child. And it, it took me a long time to see it probably until I was a teenager. For some reason, we never watched it when I was a kid and it, it really is terrifying. So it should be a fun conversation. Yeah.
2: All right, so yeah, let's just go ahead. We'll go and get into uh, the, um, the 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 air date. I don't know what I'm, what I'm talking about. So, season one, episode thirty-four, uh, air date was June tenth, nineteen sixty. Number one song is "Still Kathy's Clown" by the Everly Brothers. Number one film uh, is Pollyanna. Uh, I just want to mention briefly in passing, Haley Mills won an Academy Juvenile Award for her role in this. I did not know what that was. It's a seven-inch tall version of the Oscar that was handed out uh, intermittently over 25 years, and that was the last year they gave it out. It was to, like, a kid actor. I didn't know they had tiny Oscars.
0: Anyway, I thought that yeah, was weird. I feel like that's kind of insulting. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, you're less of an actor because you're younger. Right? Yeah. Um, so I couldn't find
2: anything newsworthy from the air date, but I did find something four days previous, and it's it very much ties into... The times they were living in. Um, So um, the first fixed-rate heart uh, pacemaker with five-year, was a mercuric oxide battery and designed by a team headed by whatever doctor was implanted in a patient. So the first pacemaker, right, fixed-rate pacemaker. The same day, the American Heart Association announced a statistical association between heavy cigarette smoking and coronary heart disease. Uh, with heavy smokers having 50 to 150% greater death rate from heart disease than non-smokers that seems very appropriate for the times so i got a you got a pacemaker and smoking's bad for you finally
0: yeah i, th- I thought that was um, funny the only news story i could find is there was yet another major plane crash <laughs> I feel like I feel like every time I'm researching the air dates for these episodes, there's some crazy plane crash that kills like the entire plane, all the passengers. I I just, man, it must have been terrifying stepping on a plane back then. I mean, we'd only been flying
2: for about 50 plus years, you know, like it's, we, we're working out the kinks. It's fine. Tom
0: you dying over there
1: You, you know it's so the allergies <laughs> are horrible In New York you you got to see when we're When Joe and I are recording a film for the thought Half half of the show is just us coughing <laughs> It's <laughs> bad That's funny um, Cool so I will
0: jump Into cast and crew here This episode was directed by Douglas Hayes Which we have previously discussed In and when the sky was opened Elegy and re- Most recently the chaser Yeah Yeah and, and- uh, he- He ended up doing some stuff after that as well, but there is a definite line of improvement between all of these episodes getting up to this point. That's true,
2: and I was going to mention you just said the airplane crash we had talked about uh, during The Chaser that he was given the opportunity to direct this episode and The Chaser because of a plane crash, so that seems appropriate.
0: Yeah. Man, I'm just, these planes were going down left and right. <laughs> That's yeah, terrifying. There,
2: there was something on the wing. They just, no one believed them, but there was something on the wing.
0: <laughs> Wrong episode. Uh, yeah. So if you want to hear us talk about Douglas Says, you can go back to the, and when the sky was opened episode where we kind of dig into his filmography a little bit more, but for sake of time, I will not go through that again. This episode was written by our best friend, Rod Serling. Uh, go figure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Um, So we'll jump into cast here. We have Anne Francis plays Marsha White, who was only in one other Twilight Zone episode called uh, Jess Bell. I think it was in like the third or fourth season. Um, She was in Forbidden Planet, which was something that stuck out to me, and probably most famously Funny Girl with uh, Barbra Streisand. Oh,
2: And I saw that she was in uh, Honey West, which was the first TV series with the female uh, character's name as the lead, like a detective series. Um, the intro to that is, uh, funny cause it's also, she has like a pet ocelot. I don't know why that show <laughs> only lasted two seasons. You had me at female detective and ocelot and it, you know, but
0: that's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, it looks like she ended up not working too much, uh, just kind of sparingly later on in her career, which is, which is a huge shame cause she's pretty fantastic in this. And I, I expected her to be in more stuff that I had seen and I was kind of unfamiliar with a lot of her work
1: yeah to me she you know I I just I looked her up for the first time today and I saw the Forbidden Planet, and I was like oh shit I actually know that movie um and you know watching this episode so many times she almost reminds me of like a Judy Garland meets Taylor Swift if you if, if you catch what I'm saying yeah I could see that a little
0: bit yeah uh, I I read somewhere maybe Paul can back me up that she was a cast <laughs> she was the second choice to Elizabeth Montgomery mm-hmm Did you read that, Paul? No, but that that makes perfect sense. That makes yeah, which which I'm kind of on the side of. uh, I'm glad that she was cast because she's she's got a little bit more of a frail look to her, and uh, it makes the episode a little bit scarier. So I'm I'm glad she was cast, and I think she does a phenomenal job in this. Uh, Next up, we have Elizabeth Allen as the saleswoman. So it was her only Twilight Zone episode, and the only other thing I was really familiar with was the uh, Donovan's Reef with John Wayne. <laughs> Do you guys have anything for that, her? No? That's yeah, a lot of a lot of theater work, uh, a lot of TV, yeah. and that was about it. All right. So next up, we have James Millholland, who was Mr. Arm Brewster. Nailed that name. Uh, <laughs> two other Twilight Zone episodes. A lot of comedic bit parts in TV. He was on like at least one or two episodes of. Pretty much every uh, comedic TV show ever made, <laughs> I felt like. Um, the only other thing I saw was the Ghost of Mr. Chicken with Don Knotts.
2: <laughs> and if he wasn't playing Don Knotts, like brother, like because he had, he they look they look similar. That's just it's crazy.
0: Um, oh, and it's facial expressions.
2: Yeah, I, I just want to yeah. point out he was in a film called Night Call Nurses in 1972. I don't know what that is, but it sounds wrong.
0: Yeah, I think he ended up in Truck Turner too, a really small role with Isaac Hayes, which is a phenomenal black exploitation movie. It's it's so badass, but he was so far down the cast list, I didn't even write it down. I just remember it. Um, next up, we have John Conwell as the elevator attendant. This one was kind of interesting. Uh, guy only has a few credits. This he was in this episode and Where Is Everybody? The first episode. Um, I think he had a very small role in that, but it seems like his acting career never panned out. So he ended up going into production, and he ended up, I think, in season three, working as a assistant to the producer for uh, at least like twenty episodes or so.
2: Yeah, I I was looking at his his credits. He did a lot of behind uh, behind the scenes TV work. Like, so it looked like he had a long and busy career, but just not in front of the camera.
0: Yeah. Which, gotta give him credit. No one to call quits. Um, Then, last up, the only other person I took notes on was Patrick White as Mr. Sloan. And uh, this was also his only Twilight Zone episode.
2: Yeah, that's... I mean, I tried looking for... That's that's it. There wasn't a whole lot here. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what else to say other than there's, there's a lot of other figures in the episode later, but I didn't catch their names.
0: Yeah, none of them were credited, so... Uh, it's kind of hard to find out. There's probably somebody with an interesting story in there, but (laughs) that person was not listed. Yeah. Ski Mask Man. uh,
2: Ski Mask Man number two. We'll never know what happened to them. Yeah.
0: (laughs) They ended up in Death Wish 3. Oh, God. That's my favorite one out of all of them. Oh, (laughs) it's the best. Well, at least they ended up in the best one. Um, Uh, All right. Cool. So you guys want to let Rod take it away?
1: Express elevator to the ninth floor of a department store. Carrying Miss Marshall White on a most prosaic, ordinary, run-of-the-mill errand. Miss Marshall White on the ninth floor. Specialties department looking for a gold thimble. The odds are that she'll find it. But there are even better odds that she'll find something else. Because this isn't just a department store. This happens to be the Twilight Zone.
2: I did did not like that buzzing. That bugged me. I was trying to get the audio. I'm like, stop hitting the (laughs) elevator buttons. But, you know, uh, whatever. Anyway, good intro. Really good intro. I love the music for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we're we're back on point with the uh, incredibly written Rod Serling narrations with this episode. Um, So, Paul, I think I'm going to let you start off the synopsis here. Well, start off the episode because... I feel like my brain is going a million miles an hour right now, and I'm going to screw all this up.
2: <laughs> okay. So it opens on um, a, a department store, and where you have it's, it's a wonderful long, like, tracking shot of uh, Marsha going from counter to counter, like, kind of looking through the, the merchandise, not sure what she wants, kind of looking for something. And it eventually follows her all the way to two elevators. One is um, everybody's crowded around, and one just opens up, it just seems, for her. And as she gets in the elevator, uh, she tells the, the bellhop that she's looking for a gold thimble. Not bellhop, whatever, elevator. Uh, he had a hat on. And he's like, okay, well, we're going to go like, we'll go to the ninth floor at Specialties. And so that's where it kind of takes off. Um, that's where the episode just takes that, that turn from, oh, it's a department store, to this is getting weird in a matter of like a minute and a half.
0: Yeah, yeah. Got to, got to give credit again to Twilight Zone for a twenty minute episode and getting right into it. Um, I, I will agree with you, Paul, with the camera, the movements in that beginning scene with her going around the store. You really get a sense for how this episode is going to look, and I, I was so blown away with some of that, and it, it. You can really tell it was like a soundstage setup that he could pretty much go anywhere. There was stuff that felt like he was on a track. There was stuff that felt like it was handheld following her. It was just, it was gorgeous looking.
2: Uh, Douglas Hayes uh, said that the set was originally a large newspaper office that they converted into a department store set. And it makes me wonder as the episode goes on, you see three floors and I don't want to get too far ahead, but you see the busy first floor, the busy third floor, I think or mezzanine and then the top floor. And I, and I swear that was all the same set and just the amount of switching around and planning to get all three to look different. That that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's how they did that. Um, I love the uh, way that she, um, when it opens, I love the way that she, um, you know, interacts with the clerk, you know, it's funny, like to me that this Marsha character, like she almost comes across as a bit of a bitch, but I don't know, is that just the way they spoke to each other back then? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, she's definitely got the, uh,
0: can I speak to the manager attitude? <laughs> <Yeah>. and, uh, <laughs> working in retail for a, a long time as a teenager and everything, you come across those people that kind of have that attitude as soon as they step in a store. Sure. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what they were going for with that but I did find her likable to an extent. Yes. So I don't think that she was overwhelming. I, I, I don't know what they were going for <laughs> at all with that. Just try, trying, maybe it was kind of the way they spoke to each other. It was just a little bit short and fast and it comes across bitchier than <laughs> we're used to.
1: Or so you, her, maybe um, Maybe they wanted her to come across as like this, you know, upper class, you know, woman.
0: Yeah, cuz later on when uh you have some voices they say uh it, what it was a thing climb off of it you know who yes. you are and right. stuff. So yeah, I guess they're trying to paint her as just like an upper upper class just snooty shopper. Yeah. Well, you could also <laughs>
2: argue that maybe she doesn't know how to interact with people. You know, it could be right. uh Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, good point. That cuz I mean, you know, not to not to get too far ahead, but how often, how many people she talked to? Right.
0: That's true.
2: I mean, and clearly the elevator operator talked to less people because he was, you think, you think she was standoffish. She was just kind of like, are you, are we done talking now? Because I can get you to the ninth floor, you know, uh, for specialties. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's, that's a great little segue. So when she gets in the elevator, she tells him that she's looking for a gold thimble and he says, Oh, that's on the ninth floor. So they go up to the ninth floor and the door opens and, it's empty. The lights are out and there's nothing up there. And she steps out and she turns around and she's like, surely this is a mistake. There's nothing here. And <laughs> I love the way he just shuts the door in her face. Like I, <laughs> I die every time I see that. It's so, it's so awesome.
2: And I, I like the statement he made too about the elevators. Cause she's like, oh, this is a private elevator just for me. He's like, this one's express. And he says to her, the others are all locals this time of day. And I don't know if that's directly towards her about what's going on or talking about the elevators themselves. You know, how the the rest of them hit local floors and that the ninth floor is an express floor. It just felt like a really oddly particular thing to say to her. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I yeah. definitely agree. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's a well, bit strange. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so she's up on this empty floor, which, uh, I mean, Kevin, you said you worked retail. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you've worked retail. Being in an empty store... Yeah like that, no matter what time of day it is, with everything being, like, glass cases empty and and nothing going on, supernatural or not, it's just creepy.
1: It is creepy. It is creepy, absolutely. I mean, you know, I feel like while it's a great episode, I feel like it's almost something, it's very, um, what's the word, it's very reminiscent of its time. You know, like, this is you know 1960, where I feel like they were trying to do something like this today. I just don't know if it would be as creepy. You know, something about the you know, the 50s and 60s department stores, it just paints such a wonderful landscape. And I feel like today, department stores aren't really, you know, what, what is there? I mean, we have like Kohl's here. Uh, I don't see how you can make that creepy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, this
0: episode would have been very different if it took place in a Kohl's.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
2: Well, yeah, this, I, is, this is also I, before the rise of malls and then also the decay of malls and everything. So, I mean, I feel like when you're in a department store, this was like the up and up, right? Like this is the, the,
0: you know, the heart of business. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, yeah, I was going to say there, there is something charming though, you know, growing up, I kind of caught the tail end of department stores and they were not looked on as highly as they were back then. Yeah. And, uh, I just, you know, I, I never really shopped in department stores and they're still kind of around, but not nearly as cool. So it's it's interesting to see it just full of people. And it feels pretty realistic, especially yeah. in that opening shot. And you got the generic, busy shopping music playing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot of people can relate to something like this. Maybe not necessarily being in a department store, but being in a crowded store. And it's just like, like you said earlier, you're just sucked into the episode. Like we just get going. Sets the scene and it's like, OK, this is what's going on here. Yeah, for sure.
0: It, and it
2: helps too like when you get to the ninth floor after all the busyness just to see how isolated she is and how like you know the guy slams the door on her she wanders around which I don't know why my, my first thought would be like I'm going to to keep pressing the elevator button but that's just me <laughs> um and as she wanders around like it's just there it, it's very stark I mean I know it's on purpose but it just like you, you remove everything from the scene and it's just her you know and when, in the very beginning she's lost amongst all the objects almost.
0: Yeah, and when she's up there, it they take pretty much all of the music out of it, which I think is one of the standout things for me in this episode is just the lack of a score most of the time, and it just creates this great sense of isolation and um, it just a, a realism to it because you know you're you're not really taken out of it by having some bombastic score playing in the background. It's just her and this empty. Department store,
1: and well, you're in it. One of the many things I love about this episode is the lack of score, and I think that's perfect. You know, um, so many, you know, episodes or, you know, TV shows we see from back then and even today, or even movies, overdone with the score. Whereas I feel here the lack of score adds to the, um, you know, creepiness of it. And you feel like you're right there with Marsha. It being quiet, having no score, shows that, wow, she's like alone here. There's nothing on this empty
0: floor. Yeah. Yeah. Really good stuff. Um, so after she's up there kind of wandering around after the elevator attendant leaves her up there, is that what it's called? Elevator attendant? Sure. Yeah. Uh, or am I mixing that with ele- bathroom attendant?
2: <laughs> He's listed in the credits
0: as elevator man. So I don't elevator. know
2: why I said bellhop Cause I guess I was just thinking hotel. I, I don't, I don't know.
0: Is he related to the lawnmower man? Maybe. It uh, <laughs>
2: seems like they had about the same amount of social skills.
0: Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so she's walking around and she passes a glass case, and yeah. you see somebody coming out of the shadows, which is really memorable shot in this episode. And as she comes into the forefront of the shot, it's a store employee up there who asks her what she's looking for.
2: Yeah, and this is the part of the episode that, like, watching it and rewatching it, I'm still confused by. Like, I get, I mean, I get ultimately where the episode ends up, and I, and I think it's wonderful, but I don't. I don't understand the point of the conversation that's had there. It doesn't seem to move Marsha forward, other than to unnerve her. You know, and, and I know that you know, maybe that's simply what it was, but I feel like there was just a lot of statements there that were made between the salesperson and her. Because uh, as it goes on, she finds her thimble, which is the only object for sale on the ninth floor. Um, and it's yeah. just there's a lot of. It feels like there is a lot of dialogue. That's off-putting, but it doesn't advance anything.
0: Yeah, and you know, with where this episode ends up, it almost seems – I mean, it's, it's adding to suspense and it's adding to the story and adding to the ministry and everything. So I understand why it's there, but with the ultimate goal of that store employee that's up there and what she's trying to get Marsha to do or realize um, – it seems like she should have just come out and said it. Like, why? Right.
1: <laughs> why go through all the games
0: with it? Um, yeah, I
1: thought I thought that myself. That's a pretty good point, actually. Why is the saleswoman like, you know, kind of going along with it? Why is she asking, playing into this, you know, thing? Yeah, that-
0: especially. Yeah, so it's it's weird and it's kind of a nitpick because, like I said, it advances the mystery and it's, yeah. it's supposed to engage the viewer. So it's, it's fine on that basis. But when you really sit down and you watch it multiple times and you're dissecting it for something like this where we're going to talk about it for an hour, you really start to overthink it. And that becomes a, a kind of a big problem for me.
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, I, like there's other episodes we've even watched the season where there's been like just enough of a dialogue tilt that you're just like, Oh, this lays out everything in front of us. And Sterling is really good at that. So that's why I'm wondering, like this feels like this is his, his wheelhouse to write something that is saying two things at once, which he's really, really good at like, you know, foreshadowing. And there just, it didn't feel like there was anything there other than the fact that the salesperson knew Marsha's name, knew her first and last name and seemed familiar with her. And that's, that was about it.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so she ends up buying the uh, thimble, and she it, she ends up running back to the elevator. And while she's in the elevator, she realizes that the thimble was scratched. <laughs> so she complains to the elevator attendant, and he said, "Complaints third floor." <laughs> yeah, she's yeah.
1: like, "Well, it's it's scratched. Just take me up." What, what was that? I'm sorry. No, no, that that was pretty funny. I mean, it, between the elevator man just not caring at all. And I think she's very dramatic in this scene. You know, this is what I'm talking about, where she kind of comes across as a little bit of a snob. And, you know, just the way she communicates to him. And I love how he just shuts her down by saying, complaints, third floor. Like, that's great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, the the elevator attendant, though, he is what I'm used to when I go to department stores now, as far <laughs> as customer service.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course.
0: Yeah, so he tells her, uh, complaints, third floor, and drops her off on third floor. Uh, we cut to Mr. Arm Brewster, who is talking to the store manager, Mr. Sloan, and he's kind of telling him the story of uh, what this, what Marsha's complaint is. So, it, it's kind of a funny scene. Mr. Arm Brewster, uh, that character actor, um, James Milholland, he's kind of hamming it up. He's, he's funny at certain times, I think a little bit over the top for the atmosphere that this episode is creating, but I, I don't know what you guys think about him.
1: I think he's great. <laughs> I, you like him? Yeah, I like I, do. I
0: don't dislike I do. him. I just think he's he's a little bit off from the rest of the atmosphere of this episode. That's that's it, all I think. Like he's funny, but well he yes, just he, he feels he weird comes,
1: to me. He comes across almost like a little flamboyant, um almost like a theater actor in a sense. And yeah, I actually like that. I can see why that wouldn't work for some people because it does seem very different. Like everything has a very serious tone. then you have this man come in there and he's definitely different than everybody else in the episode. But I kind of like that. It kind of grounds it in reality a little bit. And uh, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And it might be coming off because, I mean, you've heard Paul mention the last episode uh, was really heavily comedically based and, it didn't really hit for us. So it it might be one of those things going in order and coming off of not the best comedic episode that maybe I just didn't want any comedy in this going around this time. Well, okay, he he
2: plays it really broad and that's fine. I just, I don't know if it fits this episode, but if you would have put him in the previous episode playing the guardian angel, I think he would have had something there because he actually had a lot of expression and a lot of, um, not that he, I mean, he was chewing up the scenery and it was, it was fine, like especially at the end when he's bustling about the store, like kind of doing like the daily opening, right? Like I, <laughs> he was entertaining. I, I liked him. I don't think he was the best fit for this episode, but he was also my favorite part of the episode.
0: If that makes sense,
1: <laughs> I guess it's I, weird. I, I know. I don't know. <laughs>
0: hmm. uh, um, yeah, and speaking of Don Knox, some of uh, some of his uh, Don Knotts, excuse <laughs> me, uh, some of his expressions, looking off camera reminded me of Three's Company so much. (laughs) I can see that. Yeah. So uh, they end up going out and talking to uh, Marsha and the manager politely tells her uh, why don't you go and return that thimble to uh, whatever area of the store she got in. She says I got it from the ninth floor and he politely tells her there is no ninth floor. And uh, as she's talking to him she realizes that the uh, woman who she spoke to up on the ninth floor is actually standing there in the store, and sure enough, it,
1: it ends up being a mannequin. <laughs> that to me, that's one of my top favorite moments of the episode because, you know, what was great about this episode? I love the pacing, and you know, we have bizarre event after bizarre event, and then this is the first moment you know when. I, as an audience member when i first saw it at least i was like oh shit what really is going on here i actually don't know what to expect i I, i'm like wait a second she's a mannequin so i just had so many questions and i think it was such a great uh way to suck your audience in and i loved the quick zoom in and i loved the the sound the effect i i really appreciated that
0: yeah, I just I'm so jealous of anyone that went into this episode blind, because like I said, my my mother always talked about this uh, growing up. And so I I knew sort of what was happening. And even the first time I watched it, I knew that the episode was about mannequins. But I can only imagine, especially back in 1960, turning on the TV on a Friday night and seeing this unfold and having no idea what it was about. And, you know, that moment where you find out that she's a mannequin, like that had to have been so jarring.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh. Absolutely. Back in 1960, I would have crapped my pants in my living room. Absolutely.
0: I know. And there's sort of a jump scare later, too, that probably yeah. would have
1: almost killed me back then. <laughs> it, well, it got me, the, like I said, it got me the first time I saw it. So Yeah. yeah.
2: I just love how, like, when you realize that um, the saleswoman is a mannequin, how one of the employees picks it up and is carrying it, but you don't see the employee right after that, and there's just, like, like the shot of the mannequin bobbing up and down through the store, (laughs) the way it's done, like, from, like, shoulders up, and it looks like it's walking. Like, you get the indication that it's, like, moving. And, I mean, and you you know as as a viewer that it's not moving, but it's like you did see this living, breathing woman, and now there's a mannequin of it. It was just a really it was a smart shot just to kind of keep underlying that tension of like something's not right here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I noticed this mannequin looks so realistic. I mean, we see a lot of different mannequins in this episode, but I feel like this one in particular, they did a really good job on.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Um, The guy who did the effects, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, it was William Tuttle who worked with the twilight zone quite a bit and he did some of the real famous effects heavy episodes um which what, what was the one we just discussed a few weeks ago where he did the aging of oh the, uh, long the guy. live Walter
2: um, jameson where he uh he aged oh what's his face uh, but it was like he used the red and green lights and it was that was really cool
0: yeah, so it was the same guy in the makeup department that was making up these actors to look almost mannequin-like. And then I'm sure he was involved with the art department and uh, trying to fashion the mannequins like that. So I, I would say all of them are, are really impressive looking. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, at no time does it feel like it's it's corny. You know, it, it doesn't feel yeah. dated. Um, it looks like if somebody turned into a mannequin, it's it's so, pretty
1: perfect. Yeah, and considering the time, it being 1960, uh, really impressive. So the the three
2: the three main actors that end up uh, being actors and mannequins, and we won't say who, you know. So keep you guessing. Um, there was there was some debate about how to pull that off, and. The actual mannequins, they actually took moldings of their heads and then painted them and all that stuff. So that's actually the actors' heads that they use. Because the other mannequins, if you look, they're all they're all stylized except yeah. for you know, the main yeah. ones. And then um there whenever you had uh close-ups of people that were mannequins, but there's that transition between being a mannequin and acting um they had to figure out some type of makeup work to kind of sell that but uh buck houghton said that he knew that if they if they cut away from a mannequin to an actor real quickly that people would would kind of would kind of brush it off and and not buy into the the concept so they really had to figure out a way to sell it and i think they did a really good job of it
1: Hmm. yeah yeah
0: yeah, much better in Mirror Image, right? Yeah, don't, God damn <laughs> I like Mirror
1: Image quite a bit.
0: Oh, I, I love the episode, I, yeah, but it's, it, it's been a last, point of contention. Until the last minute. It's a really
2: good episode, and then the last minute makes me so mad. Like, you yeah. like twins. You could have used twins. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry, Kevin. You're going to get me mad.
1: Um,
0: I don't even remember what I was talking about, but I'm <laughs> I'm sure that William Tuttle was responsible for doing the molding of the actors faces for that then uh hats off once again because incredible so uh next we see i i think it's mr arm brewster is telling the store manager that she's resting after the scare and she's in the back room and uh, she has a great joke and seeing that we're based out of cleveland not not tom but uh me and paul uh She said he says that she he wishes she oh my god I can't speak. He says that he wishes he could send her somewhere west of Cleveland, which made me laugh. Yeah,
2: I thought that was yeah. a nice little little nod to Cleveland being a place with uh, jobs at the time and being a place people wanted to go.
1: Yeah, everyone how- yeah, wanted to go. <laughs> that one went over my head. I've never been to Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: because he's like, I don't care where she goes. What was it? Because like, as long as it could even be west of Cleveland, Chicago or Honolulu, I think is what he said. <laughs> um, because she was still passed out on the couch, and and then he told an associate like, "Get her out of the store. It's closing time." And then she gets distracted, and then it, the store closes at six. And then at six thirty, no one bothered checking on her. By the way, on on March. Yeah, I thought
1: that was strange.
2: <laughs> right? It's like we have a non-employee that's here in the store. All right, turn the lights off. We're go- we're done. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So she ends up waking up, and uh, she gets up, and the store is dark and empty and closed. So she starts walking around yet again. And this is the part where I really noticed the lack of score. And, uh, you know, this scene is really terrifying of her just walking around with all the mannequins oh, yeah. surrounding her. Um, I, I, there's just something inherently creepy about it. You know, and, and the lighting in this just really plays it up. And she bumps into a few mannequins. And uh, this is another thing, like you were talking about the mannequin bobbing. There's the one, I think she bumps into it, but you don't really notice her bumping into it and just kind of rocking back and forth. So it's it's almost like it moved at her. But then yeah. she ends up bumping into the other one and it falls over. And that ends up
1: being the elevator attendant. The uh, one that, yeah, she walks by and she sees this female mannequin and the handbag is shaking on the hand. And I think that's creepy as shit. I'm like, holy crap. I mean, at this point in the episode, I'm like, these mannequins alive, like, I think these mannequins are alive like that. That's (laughs) where we're at. Yeah.
0: Well, it's the kind of stuff like, you know, I on the other podcast I do, I always talk about ghost films and I love the subtlety of ghost films like stuff in the original haunting. um, Yeah, what was the other movie? The changeling stuff, you know, where it's just a chair moving. And it is the scariest thing you've ever seen. And it just, it may be a door creak a little bit. Even I'll give it to Paranormal Activity. They did it so well. You know, you see the door open. and That's all you see for like 15 minutes. But you're sitting there with chills going down your spine. It's the same thing with this, where you're walking around the silent uh, uh, soundstage. And just that little bit of movement is enough to terrify you. It's just so well done. Oh sorry. <laughs>
2: uh, I, I was I was scared I was there? so scared okay. by talk no, I was um just sorry. thinking about like uh there was also the bit too where she was uh like asking yelling for help or whatever and she's like yelling through like a bubbled glass and there's a distorted image of her face. And it's very that was creepy. that's creepy. Like I, I got a still a still of that when I go through and capture images, and even pausing the screen and capturing that made me uncomfortable because there's something about like I don't know. It looks uh, it looks like a um, like a beehive or like a like a, a wasp's nest or whatever. But you're like looking through it, and it's really it, it's very alien looking. And it's and uh, Douglas Hayes did that on purpose. I mean, obviously he shot it, but he said he had some fun with the different textures and different things, and and just kind of went like um, full tilt and different ways to creep people out. And that's probably the thing that makes me the most uncomfortable is just um, that that single image of you can't see her face directly, but there's a human face behind distorted glass, it really bothered me.
0: Yeah, and Nick kind of plays into the a final uh, a theme of this episode with identity and everything, just having that muddled vision of who she is through the glass. Um, but this is what I was talking about with Douglas Hayes just getting better and better with the series, because we saw the inventive nature when we were watching The Chaser and how he built that the library, you know, and, and just having that built for the episode and just having such incredible shots in there and just the camera work and just the way that he almost mirrors the opening camera work of it, following her across the aisles and everything. But this time in an empty, silent, dark version of that store, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's kind of mind blowing how good this director was of a fit for the show.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, the last of his episodes he directed, I think it is. Oh uh, no, actually, I'm sorry. No, this is his uh, fourth of nine. So never mind, I was yeah. wrong. He's going to do some more. Thank goodness. I'm glad he's sticking around. Whatever happened to that guy, anyway? Um, <laughs> no, but so then she ends up back up on the 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 ninth floor, uh, where um, she the, the the doors open and the saleswoman mannequin's there, and she freaks out. And it was this, it's a, yeah. it's a real easy effect, but it's awesome where the camera moves with her to the the back of the elevator and it moves away from the mannequin and then the actress walks in to talk to her so it's a nice quick changeover and it's a really great effect it's a real easy effect but it works so well
0: yeah and that's the other good jump scare i was talking about in this episode is when the door opens and uh that store employee is standing there as the uh mannequin
1: this was probably the scariest moment for me in this episode i would say just yeah a, just
2: I'd, opening I'd a door on a mannequin that. yeah that would be terrifying
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i used to do that when i worked in retail we had the cardboard stand-ups of celebrities and i would put <laughs> them like outside of the back room as one of the other employees was turning off the lights, so when they'd open it there'd yeah. just be like <laughs> there'd just be like a giant hunger game stand-up standing there <laughs> oh it's <that's> awesome <laughs> yeah it's terrifying yeah.
2: when we worked at blockbuster we had an i am legend with will smith uh, stand up and it was like about full size and where it was uh, in the store like if you turned your back and was working in the counter it would look like someone's like not directly in front of the counter but like a row back and every time out of the corner of my eye I think there's someone in the store and I'm like it's this goddamn Will Smith like every time he got
0: me <laughs> every time
2: every time.
1: Um, yeah so uh, where were we yeah th- this was uh, you have the salesperson who walks into the elevator she's yeah kind of her, comforting
0: Marsha. Marsha's crying in this episode. That's where I was trying to get back to. Yeah. It's so convincing. Just the way she's sobbing. It, my god. Like I I was kind of blown away with her performance cuz she's kind of stiff at the beginning. You know, we talked about her being kind of stuck <laughs> up and yeah, everything. Yeah,
2: He said she was stiff at the beginning. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> Sorry, um, and go I, ahead. Please. I don't think we talked about the voices calling her either.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. I think that happened downstairs. It did.
2: It did. I'm sorry. We, uh, I skipped right past yeah. that.
1: Um, yeah, because
0: that's also pretty effective. It is. You just have all the uh mannequins. Well, you don't know who's actually saying it, but uh you have everyone calling Marsha, climb off of it, you know who you are, Marsha. And it's just it's just more and more voices coming in and surrounding her. And that's what causes her to run into that elevator. And uh, the mannequin raises its hand at her. And uh, another great scare in that scene. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she's she's upstairs and she, she's being consoled by the mannequin store employee. <laughs> and all the other mannequins that are up on the ninth floor now start coming alive and following her to the other side. And uh, that's when we get the big twist here. So, Paul, you want to. Uh, you want to spoil it for everybody? Sure,
2: but that's what. Before we get there, just that sequence of from from um, right to left of her walking Marsha through the empty floor, and as they pass each of the mannequins, and they animate, and they walk with her, and then this is where the music comes in. It's it's a really it's a really great shot, and I I love it because like this like I'd seen this before a long time ago, and I'd forgot about the sequence. And this is the part that just, like, that was, the, I think, just really, really cool how they just timed it where it was um, uh, just, I don't know how to describe it. Like, everything was animating and joining her as they got to the edge uh, over by the brides. Um, and then the realization that they're all trying to remind her. It's like, remember you know who you are. Remember what's going on. And then it then it suddenly occurs to her that, oh, yeah, I'm a mannequin, too. I've been gone for a month. Uh, I don't know what a prompt like, how long it took her to figure that out. But... Yeah, so I guess there's a, va- a mannequin program where they all go out for a month at a time, like an exchange program, and go out and visit the world, and then they come back.
0: It's like, uh, what did the Amish do? Is it rumspringer, whatever Yeah, it is? that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like mannequin rumspringer. Uh
1: What a creative yeah, it, idea. You know, like, who the hell came up? You know, how do you come up with this shit? I, I, I never would have guessed that, and I just felt like that was something so refreshing. Uh, well,
0: I haven't seen that before. I'm sure Paul will discuss some of the uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, what was it? There there were a few accounts of plagiarism on this episode. I don't know, oh, boy, Paul. Gosh. I'm sure you read about this.
2: Yeah, I'll talk about that more in a second. But uh, that's that's what yeah. I figured. I, um, I
0: just want, kind of want to tease that. But the um, idea. But of, you were talking yeah. about the music kicking in. You know, we we discussed the lack of music, but it just made it that much more powerful when everything started coming together at the end, that's when you get that swell of the music. It's just it's even more gratifying during that scene because of the silence for the past twelve minutes. And the music itself isn't scary.
2: It's more it, it it's, it's it's the same score from where is everybody, so I guess your mileage yeah. may vary, but um it's more uh not not hopeful, but it's um I just don't know what the right word for it is, but it's not scary. it and and once she figures out who she is, the mannequins aren't scary, you know, it's more like she it's it's like her family, you know, and it was more it just it went from being very terrifying to we weren't here to scare you. We were here to remind you who you were by scaring the life out of you, which I mean, you know,
0: which again, uh, talking back to ghost films has become quite the trope where at the end, it's like, Oh, the ghost has been here to help you the whole time. So it's got a lot in common with those. (laughs) Yeah. Um, um, but then you yeah, find so out, yeah, she's a mannequin. Yeah. She's a mannequin.
2: That's it. That's it. We're done. Thanks for coming, Tom. All right. No. <laughs> so, um, the whole thing, like the saleswoman was like, oh, well, you know, you've been gone for a month and I'm supposed to start my month as of yesterday, but you didn't come back and you know the rules. I'm like, then why'd you spend your time talking to her about a thimble? That, that just seems like, yeah. like that, that feels like I would have, I would have done the whole Blade Runner thing and been like asking her questions that she couldn't possibly answer. Like been like, oh, you're buying this for your mother? What's your mother's name? And to see how far her life actually goes out, to have that's her start questioning, like, wait, do I even like, wh- like, why am I buying this? I don't know my mother's name. Like, that would be, that's just me overthinking a 50 year old episode. But I just felt like that would have been way more. I don't know. It would have been would have been scary to find out that you don't even know why you're in the department store, but you're there to buy something, and now you can't leave it.
1: That yeah. would yeah. Like as much as I really like this episode, yeah, it's always been one that's one thing that kind of bothers me about is that you can de- it's a bit of a plot hole. You can definitely uh, poke holes at it. Yeah. And
0: uh, like I said, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I just think right. going back and really going through it. So piece by piece, it really does become a bigger problem than it probably actually is for most people. Right.
2: But that's not why your mom talked to you about this episode. It wasn't because of the logic. It was because goddamn mannequins came to life, you know. Exactly,
0: and, like, and it, the imagery in this is probably one of the scariest things we've seen so far. Well, I know it is the scariest thing we've seen so far this season. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Like, gotta give it, gotta give it to uh, Douglas Hayes and uh, even the cinematographer, which we don't talk about enough, uh, George D. Clemens, who. Pretty much shot every episode we've talked about up till now. It just, when he's got a good director to work with, the look of the show can just be incredible.
2: Yeah. Um, I, father was odd though. When the saleswoman was like, now it's time for me to go away. And everyone's like all running off, say goodbye to her. Like, like yeah. she's about to go on a voyage and they're, all, she's like, will you miss me? And they're all like, yeah, we'll miss you. You know, it felt very, it was, it was Cheery. funny, but it was weird. You know, like after this big revelation, it's like, okay guys, we're gotta, I gotta go. Bye. You know?
1: Um, yeah, I I actually kind of like that because it kind of adds to just how this, you know, this is normal for those mannequins. It just adds to the, you know, the background of like, oh, the mannequins have a life too. And they're just so nonchalant about that. Like, okay, well you had your time. Now it's my time. Uh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And I liked that the captain, um, captain elevator man asked Marsha if she was happy or she had fun, you know, it was very, it was sweet, but it was also kind of creepy and then as he, as he's saying that, like, and this is other thing, too, that we'll, I will always remember about this episode, how she brings her hands up into a position, like a mannequin, as she's yeah. talking about it, and then they both just stop. Like, it's very, that gets me more, I think, than than um, some of the scares, just because of the whole, like, the self-realization of what you are, and now it's time to go back to sleep. Like, that's very, um, oh, it, I, they didn't linger on it so long to show where her hands were, but it was very, that, that was, um <laughs> it's a very unnerving part of it.
0: Yeah, I actually got goosebumps just thinking back to it. <laughs> yeah. It really is. There's so much just unbelievably memorable stuff in this episode. And, you know, i uh, he's so good at writing. You know, it, the reason the show has lasted so long is that there's so much he has to say underneath the plot of the episode. And I just love the It's a pretty heavy handed concept in this episode of just self perception, who you really are, what people perceive you to be and just identity and everything and our subjects he's touched on. But I think this episode really nails it home with all that stuff.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I agree.
2: And we yeah. didn't really even get to the, the the real ending of the episode, which is um, Don Knotts is running all around the the store. Oh yeah, the store oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know he's trying to catch that Jack Tripper, but uh, and, and he, as he he walks by, uh, Marsha as the mannequin, and he just looks at her and kind of does like a double take, and then he looks directly at the camera and then kind of walks away, you know. And it's it's um, and then the camera focuses on her, and then you have Sterling's in narration, and that mannequin looks so much like her. It's amazing. It does.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: Again, just incredible work with those mannequins. Yeah. That guy looking at the screen, I feel like, again, that's only something that would work back in 1960. I feel like if you try and do that today, it'll be like, oh, that's just ridiculous oh yeah he's he's definitely an actor of that era he's a character
2: it's like i almost oh, yeah. expected to hear like a muted trumpet with him looking at the the screen you know like just hearing that Wah, <laughs> yeah. Wah, and i'm like but at least they didn't do that for a show for an episode that didn't have a lot of music um, well next yeah.
0: episode we actually follow his character and he finds out he's a cartoon so <laughs> <laughs> i like it I that. <laughs> um so, so, yeah, I mean, I guess now I'll mention, like
2: uh, Kevin was was uh, alluding to, there's some controversy around this episode about where it came from, and so basically what it came down to is that there was this guy named John Collier who wrote a story called uh, Primrose, or sorry, Evening Primrose, and yeah. it was a story about a woman who went to a department store and became one of the night people. I don't know if that means she worked second shift or what, um, but and it was on a radio program called Escape, uh, and it played in 1947. This is a radio show that Serling he admitted to listening to escape, and so there was some word around, like writing circles, that he took this idea and, and you know inadvertently plagiarized it, and then there was really no claims. And then this one guy steps in, his name's Frank Gruber, who wrote a script called Thirteenth um, Floor that had very similar ideas and had submitted it to CBS and Kaiaga Productions.
0: And, well, and yeah. also was at one point sitting on the desk of producer Buck. Uh, Houghton who did uh, or Buck Houghton who did Twilight Zone oh I didn't know so, about the desk part that's that's funny well I, I don't know but it was sent to Buck uh, Houghton so it, there's no doubt that uh, Serling was familiar with both of these stories <laughs> well, but I, I think there's <laughs> I think it's one of those things where he may have been aware of the story and he may have gotten some ideas from that but what he did with it was so far off of what those two stories uh, stories yeah. are That, you know, when I was trying to do research and find out what what was really going on with this plagiarism thing, uh, somebody made a great point about, you know, this was one of the biggest things on TV at this time. And Serling, as a writer, this was a great gig. And a lot of people were trying to get their name on the show. So just by claiming plagiarism and all that and all of it ended up being pretty unfounded at the end of the day. Uh, it was just kind of a way to glom on to the success that Serling was having with this show. So I, I don't necessarily take any of it to heart because I think the teleplay that he ended up with ended up being so different. And so, I, you know, I haven't read Evening Primrose and uh, I don't think I'll ever get to read 13th Floor because it was unused as far as I know. Um, but I read quick quick synopsises of them and it, they seem so different. So I... I'm gonna give it to Serling. This is pretty yeah. solid teleplay.
1: It sounds like, yeah, he, maybe he was influenced, but he ended up making it his own, which I I agree with Kevin. So yeah, and
0: I'm I'm happy he didn't put the uh, empty floor as the 13th floor because I think that's a little bit too on the nose, so I'm yeah. happy it was just the ninth. Yeah,
2: that's cool. So uh, it goes a little further, a little bit more color to this. You guys will get a kick out of this. So Gruber was kind of bitching about Serling and these writing circles about stealing his idea. So on December 6, 1960, Serling sent Gruber a copy of the After Hours script. Confident that he would see that they were different enough and that would end the argument. Five days later, Gruber wrote back a reply, and this is like in, in quotes, uh, filling two pages full of voicing political differences before getting down to the reason at hand. So he was griping the Serling about the difference of politics before he accused him of what it was going on. And basically he said... I see that like these stories are different enough after the first few minutes. But he said, however, basically, I still find it hard to be convinced that you had not read the 13th floor, uh, the missing floor, not only the theme, but the background is also the department store. So this pissed off Serling. And two days later, he wrote back to Gruber. And I'll, I'll read the entirety of the sentence here. This is really funny. He's <laughs> like, uh, Frank, it strikes me that my detractors had better stand in line because more than one claims that the after hours is theirs. I checked with the CBS story department after your last uh, note and was told by someone in Glickman's office that there were six to eight stories that he knew of involving odd floors and buildings that were not actually there and our mannequins who came alive. I inject this only to insert what I hope is the last nail in the coffin of this argument. And it went on to say that that was the last time Sterling heard from Gruber. Interesting. <laughs>
1: really?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so funny.
2: I just like that. Serling was like, Sirling. "You made me mad. I'm going I'm to just show you how dumb you're. Like you're like you're not <laughs> the only one to think of things coming to life and floors that aren't there. Deal with it."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so many, and we've seen so many episodes this season where Serling just pulls influences from all over the place with writers at this time. You know, he was really well read within the science fiction community so how many stories are so similar like how many stories teleplays that Serling did are similar to Matheson stuff you know similar to uh, Ray Bradbury stuff you know has, they all were kind of dealing with the same themes just they're all living in the same world with the same things in the news like similar ideas are going to happen. We see that today. We, you know, we see movies coming out halfway across the world in production at the same time, nobody knowing about them. They come out at the same time. It's just sometimes there's something in the air like that. So, yeah. And, you know, it with that letter and uh, you talking about uh, he better get in line with his detractors and everything kind of goes into what I was saying where everybody was trying to get a piece of Serling's pie at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd,
2: I thought it was great that there's actually documentation of him, just him and, and, and Gruber writing back and forth. Like, I can only imagine in a world with Twitter and email how bad this would have gotten. But this was like them writing letters back and forth, you know, and I, and, and the fact that that's documented, I thought that was really entertaining.
0: Gruber would have lost. We, we all know uh, Serling's love for boxing. <laughs> yeah, right. Um. So I I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Tom, you're going to say?
1: No, that's okay. I just, I never knew this story. It's interesting. I had no idea. Thought it was completely, you know, original idea. I mean, like I said, it, it does sound like he kind of made it his own, but for there to be controversy, yeah, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. And then there's another bit of controversy, too. And I'll mention it's this hot news 50 yeah. years ago. <laughs> uh, breaking yeah. news. Uh, so they would send uh, stills from the show or like publicity stills and a little synopsis to the TV guide. So. Uh, and then they would publish it in advance, right? So TV Guide uh, featured a photo of spread for the episode with Anne Francis posing in front of her uh, mannequin. And it had um, uh, the guy, uh, what's his name, uh, Millenhouse, uh, with there with kind of like a confused look on his face between the two of them. Uh, and they they had sent the blurb to TV Guide say, Anne Francis helps manipulate the imagination this Friday. And then the editor's T V guide would have just changed it to Miss Francis plays a mannequin who comes to life in CBS's Twilight Zone. And it ruined oh. it ruined the twist. It was,
1: yeah, like yeah, that would piss me off.
0: <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah. That goes against everything that I was saying earlier about yeah. I can only imagine watching that going in blind, but everybody was reading uh, T V guide back then. So <laughs> nobody went in blind. Yeah. Oh, that's oh so that's happened, oh, that's so insulting. That
1: happened today. Forget it. People will take to Twitter.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like if Netflix is like six cents. A child sees dead his dead father, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, just on the tw- on the Netflix synopsis. You know, right. yeah. Uh, um, that's the obvious one, but still.
2: So they said all future episodes that had a twist ending were submitted with memos not to ruin the ending. Like they had to do that, you <laughs> know. So
1: oh, yeah. what a bad one to ruin too. Right. Yeah, that is. It's a shame. This has one of my favorite twists.
2: Yeah. So well, let's go ahead. We'll we'll go. Let's we'll we'll rate the twist now. So um i'm gonna give it a three uh because if the big twist is that she was a mannequin all along that i don't know how how much that sits with me uh maybe because i've seen this before and it's so iconic it's hard for me to put myself back in that chair not reading tv guide before watching it
0: (laughs) um i'm gonna go a little bit higher just because uh like I said, if if you take yourself out of, and it, it's hard to because this is such a famous episode, and I've seen it multiple times, and I grew up hearing my mom talk about it and everything, so it, it's kind of hard to take myself out of that, but I can only imagine it having no idea that it had to do with mannequins, and that would have uh, shocked the hell out of me at the time. And I, I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5 on the twist. And then, uh, let's, Tom, your thoughts?
1: I would actually give it a 5 just because I feel like I've never seen anything like this before and I never would have guessed that she was a mannequin. If anything, I would have been like, oh, you know, these mannequins, maybe they're, they're like dead customers or something. But her being a mannequin, I did not see that coming. And as many Twilight Zone episodes have I ha- that I have seen, I just feel like I've yet to see a twist that, you know, comes close to this. Maybe a couple ones, I don't there's some uh, in the later seasons you guys have not gotten to yet, so I don't want to uh, really spoil anything. But I, I would say this is definitely up there.
0: Nice. Yeah. Um, oh, there's something I was going to say about what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it was just, you know, now with the luxury of going and being able to look up the director and making the connections like, oh, this guy did this one. And uh, this has some similar elements to Elegy. Which Ron Rod Serling did not write that episode, but um, that that's one of those things where I, I feel like it's not as original as I thought it was going to be. Going back to it, but I still think it, it's. I mean, it's it's four out of five. Like this is this is one of the best episodes we've seen so far this season. Yeah,
2: I agree. Yep. And, um, yeah. and I with so this is one of my wife's favorite episodes. The only reason I mentioned that is because she has this crazy fear of mannequins and like, we can't be near like displays that much. Like we were at at FYE recently. They had a full size Batman. She could not get that close to it. I'm like, that's not really Batman. Like he would not be in an FYE. I'm sure he'd be somewhere else, you know, like, you know, at least a Best Buy. I don't know where he'd be. I don't
0: know. We had a lot of theft when I worked at FYE. So we, we could have used the Batman.
2: Well, we went to um, the, uh, the wax museum while we're out in Vegas and it's like that's all that is—is is celebrities that Perfect. look like you know. And I had no problem. I know, I know they're inanimate objects, but it's like she could not get near them. She wanted to see them. She was interested. But there, I have a photo of her near. Um. Oh, what's the the comedian from Glee? Uh, shoot, the lady. Uh. Anyway, they had one of her Jane Lynch. Yeah, that's it. They had a Jane Lynch one. She loves Jane Lynch, so I'm like, get close to it. We'll get a, a photo. It's almost like when you take a kid and put them on Santa Claus's lap, and they're terrified. Oh my it's like I'm she <laughs> she has this look of pure terror on her face, but it's like it's it's kind of Jane Lynch. She didn't want to be near her, so
0: yeah. But... I can I can understand being scared of uh, wax figures because uh, they're a little bit more lifelike and they kind of have those dead eyes. But like stylized mannequins, I'm I'm fine with. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah
2: but there's people i know that have like like they, that's still something that bothers them so i mean uh yeah you know i guess it's it's very universal so this i guess maybe this episode still still creeps people out just because of their own their own fears which i mean that makes sense right that's why this was written you know like it wouldn't be scary if it wasn't something that that kind of bothered serling
0: yeah and the idea of inanimate objects coming to life is always can be kind of creepy <laughs> I mean, look how far Chucky is gone.
1: <laughs> I
0: was
2: just going to mention maybe like uh, Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive is his version of uh, the After Hours, but that's just me. That's you know, that's just my
0: theory. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that movie is creepy at all, though. <laughs> I've never seen it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's out of control. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard that. Yeah, it's it's not
2: good, but it's fun. All right, so. um, yeah, I think that's going to that's going to do it for us. We've been talking about this this episode for for double its runtime. So I figure that would be a good a good time to maybe close it up here.
0: So so
2: Kevin Yeah, which you, yeah.
0: which I'm happy about just cuz it is one of those tentpole episodes and uh it it's it's always fun to really dig into these and see it's fun to see why so many people still love this episode and for once kind of share in the uh, love for it. I mean, we've, we've covered some stuff so far that, you know, has really, really high ratings when you look online at like IMDb and other blogs and stuff and you watch it and you're like, I I don't see the love for this episode, but this one really does stand up. So yeah. uh, Paul, you were going to ask me where
1: people can find us. Well, that too. (laughs) And then
2: obviously we're going to, you know, thank Tom and, and, and give him all the, the, the love and attention that he needs for being on our show. So Kevin, please pimp away.
0: Yeah, um, you can find us on Facebook, Strange Highways podcast. You can join in the conversation on there. And again, we're going to be trying to figure out something to end the season one. So hopefully we'll get a poll up within the next week. If me and uh, Paul get our shit together, um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher and Google Play Music. And if you would rate and review us on there, it would really help us out. And if you want to email us for any reason, leave us voicemail or emails. Uh, strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. So that brings us to the end. Tom, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's a great conversation.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh,
0: why don't you go ahead and uh, plug film for thought because I've been listening to you guys for almost six years now. <laughs> every week in my car at work. And uh, I love the show and uh so happy to become friends with you guys and be able to come on the show and have you on here so why don't you tell people what film for thought is about and where they can find that show
1: yeah so um my podcast i do with my buddy joe it's called film for thought podcast you can go to film for thought you can also email us at film for thought podcast uh, i'm sorry film for thought mail at gmail.com that's Bad. You know, we had to change the email. But um, yeah, so our show is basically we record, we try to do it every Friday. We review the latest theatrical release, whatever, you know, big movies coming out. But of course, we have exceptions. Uh, certain movies Joe and I just will not cave for. Um, so, and then also we do uh, retrospectives where we'll go through an entire series like most recently we did all four rambo films and you know we sit there we watch them and then we record we review them in the great detail and uh yeah it's a fun podcast been doing it for uh since 2011 so what is that six years now so yeah
0: that's it's an awesome show and uh like you said those retrospectives i've i've enjoyed those uh since you guys have started doing them and uh The horror ones always uh, have a place in my heart.
1: Well, still want yeah.
0: I still want to hear you guys do a uh, Universal Soldier <laughs> retrospective, but I don't think I'm ever going to get Joe on board for that one. <laughs> no,
1: no. Um, I've always wanted to see that movie, so you may hear some thoughts from me. Uh, yeah, it's funny because Joe and I have such different tastes. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a horror fan, and Joe likes his, you know, he likes dramas. He likes um you know, films from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So we have very different tastes. So it's uh, great for a lot of different discussion.
0: Yeah, and definitely makes for an interesting listen. So please go check out Film for Thought. It's a fantastic show. Yeah. Um, so I think that does it, Paul. Yeah, and again, again thank and you, and,
2: yeah, thank you, Tom, for being on here <laughs> uh, for classing up the joint. Uh, and so next episode is the Mighty Casey. Um, it's it's a sports episode. So Kevin's going to be really excited for that one uh sports comedy yeah. episode so oh god
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and it has um oh what's his face uh from the lonely uh the main actor uh was it uh uh jack jack ward jack, oh, jack warden yeah, yeah. oh he, it's
0: got two directors that's a good sign <laughs>
2: yeah uh so um, i have not seen this um signs are pointing towards um I, I just as long as it's not Mr. Beavis, um, I think I'll be okay with it. But I, it's weird that I feel like we had such like a pothole with that one, and then then the after hours, right? It's like it was like I I'm glad that we had this one after that one because otherwise I think that the, the season would have probably ended on a you know <laughs> a little bit of a sour note. Uh, but yeah, that's next episode. Uh, that's going to do it for us uh, for now. And uh, until next time, I'm going to sit perfectly still and wait till the next episode.
0: Yeah, just don't fall asleep in any stores it's never a good idea
1: <laughs> what i'd like to give Bus ticket, a one way bus ticket to any department store west of Cleveland, preferably Chicago or Los Angeles or Honolulu.